This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the Futurati Podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead, and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. everyone and thank you for listening to the Futurati podcast. Tonight we're joined by Valina Chakarova. Valina is the director at the Austrian Institute for European and Security Policy in Vienna, Austria. Her work includes research, consulting, and lectures on global system transformation and the geostrategy of global actors, particularly the EU's role in Eastern Europe. If you enjoy this interview, please don't forget to like the episode and subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out our website, futuratipodcast.com. Valina, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure being with you. We spoke with you back in episode 50, recorded in September of 2021. So why don't you give us a brief update on uh, what you've been up to? Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Okay, so what we discussed uh, during uh, the first uh, episode uh, was basically my view on the current uh, global system transformation and how I uh, look at uh, these transformational processes and try to make sense of them. And the way in the way how I anticipated uh, certain systemic shifts and uh, changes uh, was uh, basically um, centered around several ideas. Ideas which I derived from actually from strategic uh, foresight and trends analysis. And the one trend that I've been carefully looking at uh, for at least the last, um, uh, let's say, 10, 12 years um, is the trend of bifurcation of the global system, namely a process where in all relevant socioeconomic networks, there is a kind of a um, bipolarization of uh, of the network that would mean uh, the the emergence of two centers of power. The one, of course, being uh, centered around uh, United States, which is still the only state actor with global power projections, undoubtedly, even now in 2022. However, there is, uh, meanwhile, a second center of power, a regional one, which is now being centered around China. And, of course, the open question is whether this center of uh, power is going to uh, transfer 
its geoeconomic cloud and also growing geopolitical cloud into a global power projection. This is a question mark. The trend points to the bifurcation, but it does not necessarily uh, have to um, end up with this scenario. We may, of course, we may also witness a kind of a unilateral period of uh, the international relations, uh, basically not the same as following the collapse of the Soviet Union, but a similar period or dominated by, once again, American global uh, power projection, we may end up also in a scenario where there will be regional centers of power. Uh, for instance, given uh, that uh, Russia is currently um, in a full-scale war against a sovereign country, and depending on the outcome of this war, Russia may end up with, uh, uh, you know, with not not the outcome that Moscow has been anticipating. So in a sense, may erase out, uh, itself uh, from uh, the current global power uh, equilibrium. So a lot of question marks. This was the one thing, the bifurcation of the global system. Uh, the second, of course, is that um, due to this bifurcation, we have a lot of mid-sized powers in the world in all relevant continents, where basically regional actors are mostly interested in um, avoiding taking sides because by navigating between these two centers of power, they can actually capitalize uh, on or maximize, let's say, gains uh, from the relations with both United States and uh, China. And there are many examples of such uh, regional uh, actors, specifically if you look at uh, the European continent, you will find that the European Union, which is a strategic partner of uh, United States on the one hand, but has been actually deepening relations with China, basically um, expanding the geoeconomic relationship with China, while not looking at China as a potential security threat. At the same time, of course, some countries, meanwhile, and we've actually observed such examples. Um, here, of course, my thesis, my main thesis is that at some point of time, given the acceleration of the global uh, systemic processes, we may end up with a scenario where these regional actors will be confronted with either or choice. And for instance, if you look at what Australia uh, actually decided to do, namely to enter a security and defense pact with the United States and with Great Britain, the so-called AUKUS. This was a clear decision against its two economic ties with China, which at that point of time were quite um, relevant and uh, significant. So in a sense, I think that we will observe more uh, such examples. And right now, I also argue that um, uh, the decision by Moscow to enter this war, to actually launch a full-scale war, um, has entailed this layer, this additional layer um, of uh, calculation, which uh, is in fact the realization that Russia needs to upgrade its positioning in the long game. That is going to be the systemic competition between 
United States and uh, China. And in doing so, basically, Russia sided with China. And uh, I even argued that um, um, the Russian president would have never taken the decision uh, on a full-scale war against Ukraine on the 24th of February if he had not relied on the overt and explicit financial, economic and trade support by China in the aftermath. And I will stop here for more questions. So you, you covered a lot of ground there. I remember that that conversation. That's episode 50. If anyone in the audience hasn't heard it and wants to go back and listen to it, it was fascinating. I obviously wanted to, to speak with you because of the unfolding aggression of perpetrated by Russia against the Ukraine. And I wanted to, to back up first and ask you a foundational question. And, and that is related to Vladimir Putin's motives here. So you said that he would not have proceeded with this if he didn't have the explicit economic and financial assurances of China. And there's been a lot of speculation about what exactly is going on inside of his head. You've got John Mearsheimer, who says that it's driven entirely by concerns over NATO expansion. We interviewed Samuel Buri a little bit back, and, and he said that he thinks that actually what Vladimir Putin is trying to do is uh, establish kind of a new Russian state, not not hearkening back to the Soviet Union, but something even older than that and reconceptualizing the the legitimacy of the of the Russian state. Where do you come down on that? Like, what do you think he's hoping to get out of this? In my personal view, Russia's plans uh, to make a move on Ukraine um, have uh, entailed three specific dimensions right from the start. There was no doubt to my mind that the final, the ultimate goal of Russia has always been the subjugation of Ukraine. However, I anticipated uh, this uh, process in several stages. So, in fact, when the military escalation began at the end of November, beginning of December, there was no doubt, uh, at least in my anticipation, that we would uh, witness a military attack, a direct military attack by Russia against Ukraine at some point of time. And I argued in December that this will definitely be after the Olympic Games uh, on February uh, 20. However, um, I belong to the majority of uh, experts who basically, um, well, were wrong on the scale of this military attack because it was not a military attack. I anticipated a limited operation in the eastern parts of Ukraine because from a geopolitical point of view, this would have, and I will go to the second and the third uh, dimension to explain how I actually anticipated the whole process. Uh, in reality, this would have meant a second invasion of Ukraine following the 2014 episode where, in fact, Russia annexed parts of uh, Ukraine. Uh, this was Crimea and also established military presence in other parts of Ukraine, which was in the eastern part of Lugansk and uh, Donetsk. Donetsk. And um, these republics were basically directly backed by Russia's military uh, support, equipment and uh, financial backing and whatsoever. And of course, the aspirations this time were going beyond uh, the republics, uh, namely um, reaching to the so-called re uh, regions, which uh, in fact, in December uh, were still 
well, two-thirds of uh, these uh, regions were still under Ukraine's control. And this, of course, would have meant casus belli because, uh, uh, you know, given the fact that a uh, military attack was uh, definitely on the agenda. Russian troops would have uh, then entered uh, these regions. And in reality, Ukraine would have had only two options, either to send the Ukrainian troops against the Russian troops. Uh, and that they, this, of course, would have meant a direct military conflict, a war, or to withdraw them from the regions and basically to uh, give Russia the opportunity to establish military control to uh, then uh, either conduct a referendum as it did in 2014 with Crimea and then to decide either to declare them as independent republics as it did with uh, Georgia in 2028 uh, or even to annex them as it did in 2014. So you see different options and still given this scenario, uh, I argue that from a geopolitical point of view, the West and specifically the European powers would have never remained on the same page uh, given their approach and response to uh, the Russian actions. Because once again, European powers would have been involved in a kind of dispute, how severe, how serious this response, uh, response should, uh, should be. Right. But in reality, by going the bank, what Putin did, in my view, was basically to skip several uh, phases, as I said, from the next 10 to 15 years and to really make a full scale move on Ukraine. Uh, basically, what we observed on 24th of February was um, not a single military operation or a special military operation as he announced on the television, but it was in reality a war being conducted in three specific directions, in the south, in the east, and in the north of the country, simultaneously. And in a sense, by going the bank, uh, in fact, uh, the Russian president miscalculated on the response by the European powers. Right. Um, and of course, uh, it miscalculated uh, also significantly uh, on the response by the Ukra Ukrainian forces and the Ukrainian resistance. So two of the main factors that he actually was counting on did not uh, come true. Right, so, Ukraine sustained a blitz operation. I will be right. Um, I will be. I, I just need a few more sentences to explain. So Ukraine, in fact, sustained the blitz operation in the first uh, few days. A huge miscalculation by the Russian president. A second, the European powers were already prepared for a worst-case scenario and, in fact, responded uh, swiftly and with the most severe sanctions. Um, ever in the history of the relations between uh, the European Union and uh, Russia, where he did not miscalculate once again, was the reaction, uh, the China's reaction. But this, of course, is a question mark. Now, let me just ex uh, clarify something. This is now the tactical level. This is the first and most important dimension. What was the long-term plan of doing this? Why did he go the bank? This is, of course, a question we need to understand. And in fact, what he seeks to do is something that goes much beyond uh, Ukraine itself. He needs Ukraine, the Ukraine. So basically, the necessary condition for his 
revisionist ambitions is Ukraine. But this is not the sufficient condition. The sufficient condition would be to be successful with this war and to actually build something that uh, goes back to the imperial Russia to create a union of the three uh, main countries that actually represent the Russian, the one and the same uh, people, right? Which he uh, several, well, actually he pointed out several times in his written essays to uh, unite Ukraine, Russia, and Belarus into something that he may call union state or whatsoever state, and then to also annex other parts from other Eastern European countries, such as Transnistria in Moldova, uh, the republics in Georgia. Uh, so he has also more space. And by having more space, basically he is suddenly in charge of the largest European country, so he basically is then able to rewrite the rules of the European security architecture. And this is the second dimension. And the third dimension, of course, preparation for the long game, namely, he needs more space, he needs his own sphere of influence, he needs his own grandiose geopolitical project in order to position itself uh, position himself in the competition between China and the United States. So one of the biggest fears most people have right now is that this is going to evolve into a world war and uh, other countries get sucked into this this conflict. And uh, what would what would you put the percentage at today and what are s some of the key factors to look at uh, uh, how that could escalate into something even more um, uh, all-encompassing of countries all around the world. If, if we look at the period between the First and the Second World War as an intermission, so is, in my view, the period between the First and the Second Cold War. This intermission is over. We should actually accept the fact that we are already in a Cold War II situation. Whether we like it or not, whether we see clear signs of it or not, evidence, uh, you know, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, right? So in a sense, I argue that we are already in a situation, it's a transitional period of the international relations. Um, we are in a, at an inflection point in the global affairs. And I argue that Russia, Russia's war marks the manifestation of Cold War II. What, what are some possible tipping points that would cause, uh, escalate things dramatically? Um, have, you, have you itemized any of those type of things? Yes, of course, I thought about it a lot. And um, for, for me personally, of course, the very fact that uh, we are now observing uh, regional um, players, because Russia, of course, is a significant great power with a regional power projection. Russia's power projection is insofar regionally oriented uh, because it goes um, well, it follows a north-south vertical expansion of geoeconomic and geopolitical interests. 
you know, moving from the north, uh, from the Arctic and the Baltic Sea, entailing parts of uh, Eurasia and Central, um, so basically Central Asia, South Caucasus, Eastern Europe. So moving along the eastern flank of NATO and then, of course, uh, reaching to Black Sea, to the Black Sea, to the Caspian Sea, to the Mediterranean Sea. And now you, meanwhile, are also observing on the map military bases and presence in the Middle East. And this, of course, expansion, vertical expansion is now moving even to Africa with uh, the possibility also to get an access to the Indian Ocean. Now, given this uh, regional power projection, of course, uh, the very fact that we have significant state actors which are still willing and able to uh, use hard power uh, in order to solve political problems. And um, and and uh, this, to my mind, is not going to be the only case. Uh, on the opposite, this will actually open a Pandora box. So this is one tipping point for me. I mean, Russia's full-scale war is definitely a tipping point in a sense that so far they have been limited limited um, military uh, operations and limited uh, military conflicts and tensions in this, uh, you know, intermission uh, between the Cold War One and Cold War Two. But right now, we are observing full-scale, full-scale um, wars where uh, countries uh, withdraw, basically the uh, the map. And uh, by doing so, um, in fact, they are denying the very existence of other sovereign countries. And of course, we can argue that we have witnessed other, many other wars in this period. But we haven't observed that kind of blatant um, rewriting of, uh, of uh, the global map. Right. When it comes to the existence of countries, even the U.S. wars, they did not deny the existence of, a, of, of, of the sovereign, of the sovereignty of a country, ABC. Right. Uh, in the Balkan wars in Europe in the 90s, they did not deny the existence of the countries, ABC, on the map, on the opposite, right? So in a sense, this is a new element. This will actually open the door to other revisionist powers to put to put their demands on uh, the agenda and to actually use hard power in order to achieve political goals. This is the one thing. And the second is that um, we have to look at the non-military dimensions of, uh, of the Cold War. So you look at the political eco economy domain and you see already that there are commodity wars being prepared because I argue that the Russian president has indeed factored in the severe sanctions and has in fact prepared retaliation uh, by being one of the most significant commodities exporter in the world even if he decides to ban exports, like take, for instance, grain exports or other significant commodities, um, not just in the field of energy, um, 
he knows that he will unleash centrifugal forces. Uh, there will be a food crisis, which has already be begun emerging uh, last December, where the food uh, price index reached Arab Spring levels. And now by doing uh, so, by launching uh, grain export bans, he knows very well that this will in fact accelerate the processes. So you have commodity wars. This is a definitely a tipping point where there will be no return because it will actually uh, lead to unanticipated second order events. We don't know exactly how, but take uh, North Africa Africa, Middle East, um, Asian countries, which are so dependent on these grain exports. And uh, it's a recipe for political, economic and social turmoil. And this, of course, by unanticipated uh, second order events, I, of course, mean coups. I mean, um, military conflicts between neighboring countries, migration flows, and so on and so forth. So in a sense, uh, we are there. And of course, the other tipping point, which has been in the making since the beginning of the uh, COVID-19 uh, pandemic, and in fact, we have been prior to that already in a deglobalization cycle since 2013. But with the COVID pandemic, we also entered a global disruption of supply chains. And I argue that given the this war and this bifurcation where China will side with Russia, because otherwise it will even get more weaker uh, by, uh, you know, by, by the due to the decoupling efforts on both sides, on the side of Washington and on the side of Beijing. So they cannot stop these processes right now. So China needs to support Russia because otherwise it will actually suffer from, from, uh, from, uh, this, uh, from these uh, processes. In a sense, I argue that this uh, next very important tipping point will be the um, split, if you like, or the coexistence of alternative supply chains, because on the one side, China will need to create alternative uh, sea lines, terrestrial uh, connectivity, uh, one that is not under American control. And by doing so, it will uh, also have to reconfigure supply chains. And then on the other side, of course, the West is doing the same, has been doing the same since the last two years. So you are observing also bifurcation of the supply chains. There's a lot there that I'd like to follow up on. I want to talk about projecting hard power specifically in the context of a potential invasion of Taiwan by China, and then also looking at the dynamics of a second Cold War. But for right now, I wanted to follow up on this idea of a, of a, a commodities dimension to the unfolding conflicts. And many have pointed out that there are these massive exceptions in the sanctions package for Russian energy exports because Europe is so desperately reliant on, on their, their liquid natural gas and their oil. And it's hard not to reflect on the past decade or so of pushes by environmentalist governments to stop the development of fossil fuels and nuclear energy. Uh, and, and the fact that that has now put them in, in this precarious spot. So how do you think about the energy economics dimension of all of this? And what, I suppose, recommendations do you have going forward? Well, first, we need to understand that a lot of uh, a lot of these decisions are, of course, um, being taken by politicians, decision makers who operate uh, in two to four years uh, 
um, time frame. And in a sense, they do not uh, take the responsibility for, you know, their decisions uh, or, you know, for the long-term repercussions of their decisions. This is the first thing. Uh, and of course, the decision on decarbonization, uh, which has been taken uh, here in Europe uh, collectively, because more or less it's a decision uh, which emerged out of a very complex twofold uh, process, decision-making process. We have on the one side European Union institutions, and on the other side we have the governments. And this decision is not is is not. Um, irreversible. In a sense, all governments stick to it, um, but it's highly political and has a, has um, no real geoeconomic understanding that backs it. It's political in a sense that right now, of course, um, many governments uh, have also um, a, a Greens party right. as part of the government. Uh, either at local or at uh, you know uh, at federal level, that's the first thing. Uh, second, because there is a lot of pressure coming from the society, so they need to do it. And third, uh, it there is a political promise that is not backed by the reality. And the reality is that uh, right now, uh, I don't see how they are going to cut the dependence on fossil fuels in general in the given time frame. Right. Uh, first, uh, when it comes to dependence, because you named it, um, in reality, right now, there is a serious discussion in European capitals as to uh, how quickly and how swiftly uh, governments should cut the dependence on specifically Russian gas, which is around 40 percent. Um, and uh, of course, oil. Now, given the fact that there are European Union members which are dependent on Russian gas between 80 and 100%, it is obvious that these decisions are not realistic at all because uh, if there is a collective decision, exactly these countries will be so hard hit that the others in the family of the European Union will have to take care of their energy security as well, which of course is unrealistic as well. And in a sense, it is a kind of a, um, a more or less suicidal, uh, right. suicidal position. Uh, now, of course, the logical question will be, why did these countries not take uh, the necessary uh, steps to actually cut these dependencies. It's like, it's like they're playing one-dimensional chess instead of four-dimensional chess. And the truth, exactly. <laughs> and the truth is that there was no real incentive, neither on the side of governments nor on the side of lobby groups, to actually cut these ties because of the cheap uh, possibility of uh, getting the Russian gas, not because there are no alternatives. So in reality, we are where we are. It will take much longer to cut this dependence. Whether this will happen, I do not have any doubts. It will happen because energy has turned into a geopolitical tool. And in fact, the Russian government already threatened that they may, in fact, cut the supplies right. to Europe. Right now, 
we are in such an awkward situation. Um, in fact, in the, the gas flows to Europe from Russia, uh, in the first ten, uh, 10 days of uh, the war, uh, have uh, increased. And in reality, Europe has been funding Russia's war against Ukraine, even though that uh, European Union is in fact siding with Ukraine and is actually supporting Ukraine with financial funds, with defensive weapons and whatsoever. So you see how absurd the whole situation is. And I struggled throughout all of these years to actually explain to uh, decision makers and to people in governmental positions uh, how important it is to be diversified because energy security first and foremost does not mean to get your energy from the most uh, to, from the cheapest source but in fact is to be diversified to the extent that if you have to uh, avoid one of your suppliers you will still be actually uh, safe in terms of supplies because the rest of the, uh, your suppliers will actually uh, provide the necessary volume. And this is not the reality right now. This is not the reality in Europe. So when the United States decides to ban uh, Russian oil, it is only because uh, the United States is self-sufficient in terms of energy. The United States is no longer dependent on a sole source of energy. First and foremost, the United States have become also uh, uh, energy exporter. And this is a very different story um, when we compare it with the European Union, which is still very much dependent on uh, energy supplies. Absolutely. And China has come up several different times in this conversation. And I know that for a long time, you've advocated for the Dragon Bear thesis that there's this growing alliance fomenting between Russia and China, whereas a few decades ago, it was seen as improbable that those two would ally in the way they have. Now it's, it's looking more and more like that is shaping up. So would you say that this, uh, the, the fact that China hasn't, has not only not formally condemned Russia, but that they actually might play a key part in helping them evade sanctions provides evidence for your thesis? And how do you see that evolving going forward? Well, I very much hope that I will be wrong on this uh, thesis about the dragon bear, because if I am wrong, then it would mean that the two would not coordinate and will not create a second uh, um, powerful geopolitical bloc that will be confronting the West uh, in uh, the next uh, years, decades, uh, or who knows how long it will take. So in a sense, um, my thesis about the dragon bear uh, is now actually showing um, showing clearly what a modus vivendi of coordination between these two powers really means on the ground. Because I argued right from the start that this is not going to be an alliance. Both do not need to enter an alliance. There is no strategic necessity for an alliance or for intent or what kind of uh, Western um, uh, understanding uh, we have about uh, alliances uh, based on shared values. Uh, there is one major shared interest, and that is to survive in this transitional period 
of the international relations. And specifically, this, uh, this is, of course, uh, meant for Russia. But for China, equally, it would mean, um, and this is, of course, the second shared interest, to create a credible counterweight to American global power projection. So in a sense, it's a kind of an unwritten um, agreement between these two powers to coordinate in all relevant strategic domains that will help them create a credible counterweight to American global power projection in relevant geographical areas as well, where they can actually uh, come together, work uh, closer together in order to, um, to drive uh, away uh, other external actors. And specifically, of course, it's about the West. And I can give you a concrete example. Such uh, geographic uh, area is the heartland. This is the Eurasia. They will need Eurasia to create terrestrial connectivity, north-south and also west uh, east, north-south, it means, of course, uh, given the climate change, if uh, the Arctic uh, offers new opportunities with the Northern Sea route, this would uh, give uh, both powers a maritime sea line. So basically maritime uh, line for transport of goods and also, you know, militarization of a maritime line away from American global dominance. On the other side, of course, the Eurasian heartland is what has been described by all geopolitical analysts as the heart of, uh, of um, the axis or the key to global dominance. In a sense, if they come together and the one being a former heartland superpower, namely Soviet Union, the successor of the Soviet Union, and now another one being en route to emerging heartland power because China is not simply building up in the maritime domain, in the Indo-Pacific and in South China Sea. China is simultaneously seeking to become both a rimland and heartland power. And China can become a heartland power only with the help of Russia. And at the same time, it can also focus on becoming a rimland in this specific uh, Indo-Pacific uh, realm. So in a sense, uh, there are geographic, uh, there are geographic uh, of a, uh, there is geographic overlapping. The thesis that they will have actually conflictual interests in specifically Central Asia and also in, to some extent in South Asia uh, have not been validated so far. In reality, uh, the withdrawal of the United States from Afghanistan last year, the military uh, involvement of Russia in Kazakhstan in January this year show, in fact, coordination where, uh, in reality, both are uh, using this modus vivendi to fill a geopolitical void to uh, create a certain stability for themselves and once again to uh, help each other to uh, prevent other external actors from entering these yeah. uh, areas. So, so there's, a, there's a lot of people that are writing articles about how different the technology is between World War II and how it's evolved to today. And one of the big differences is that we have so much more awareness of the world around us and uh, people have cell phones that they can access and get get the news. And so 
Russia really has a hard time controlling the media like they've done in the past because people are downloading VPN apps on their phones and they're they're actually getting the real story. So we're seeing massive protests in St. Petersburg and and uh, other uh, Russian cities. And uh, so I'm just curious as to how, how big of an effect this will have because the stories that are coming out of the Ukraine are, uh, I mean, there was, there's one about farmers take, uh, taking on a tank and they took it over and they showed a, a video of driving down the road with a tractor pulling the tank behind them. And these type of things are, are hugely motivating to this little ragtag force in, in the Ukraine that's trying to survive. Um, so how big a factor is this? And is, is there... Um, protests inside of the Soviet Union that will ever amount to anything that they need to concern themselves about? Um, there are indeed protests, but I do not consider them as uh, risky enough or dangerous enough to uh, topple uh, the Russian president. If there would be any r real uh, risk scenario for the Russian president at all, given the circumstances so that means given how successful he will be with uh, the war uh, given the repercussions from the sanctions that means how precarious the situation will become in uh, the country and also you know the given the isolation of russia so these three uh, specific factors the only realistic risk scenario i see for him that means who could topple him? I do not see a danger coming from uh, from the Russian people. Um, and please consider that uh, Russia still has actually mostly um, uh, rural population. So you have the urban population in the big cities in uh, in in Russia. Uh, well, parts of it uh, went. To the streets but many people are still dispersed in the largest country of the world somewhere in the middle of nothing where you are only watching russia controlled uh television and people really buy buy what they see right so in a sense we only get to the one side of uh, of the of the of the picture the current picture so it's not going to be the russian people it's not going to be the oligarchs even though that they are already feeling the pain uh, by the sanctions it's only going to come from uh, the closest of the closest circles of putin which consists of the so-called Siloviki. These are the people from the intelligence services, from the military, uh, from the security apparatus. And these people, if they see an imminent threat to Russia, and you would, you have to also understand that there are people in these circles who, compared to Putin, are real hawks, who would not stop themselves from you know, <laughs> uh, pushing the button no, and okay. exterminating the whole world. The real hoax, like he looks, uh, even Putin looks like um, liberal <laughs> compared to them. So in a sense, uh, a real, re or let's say a realistic danger 
for uh, for him would come from the Siloviki circles, um, depending on, as I said, on the way how these three factors will uh, well will um, further develop in the next probably few weeks to months. So this will be the decisive period. Uh, which I will be looking at carefully, looking at to see how uh, to see to see the direction of this uh, trends development. So, is there is there one hardship that would really influence the outcome? I mean, if we cut off all their vodka supply or something, <laughs> uh, uh, is there is there one single hardship um, uh, that they're so reliant on that? Um, that would change the the course of events. I think they make most of the vodka in Russia. I don't think they get it from I think here. They do I don't too, think we yeah. can cut off their supply. Yeah. Uh, it is hard to tell for someone who has come from you know from the Soviet bloc and has lived, uh, you know, during this time and also survived the nineties. I really struggle to give you an answer to that. I mean, I mean if I go back to the past, uh, even during my childhood, uh, I've seen everything. So in a sense, with what kind of scenario these people could be really scared of? Hyperinflation? Check. Uh, default? If, Check. If, if, <laughs> so basically, you have, you have uh, you, in, a, in a country where you have seen the worst, um, uh, and you have seen the worst on a permanent uh, base, right? From one worst to the next, from one worst to the next. Um, right now, if I compare uh, Russian Russia Russia's uh, main socioeconomic factors, even with the ones uh, in 2014, following the previous isolation, I would say that uh, he has carefully prepared in every significant domain for what would come next if he would uh, attack Ukraine uh, in financial so, terms, in social, so basically in social economic terms. And it's really hard to tell how, uh, what exactly the tipping point would be for the Russian state to collapse, to, uh, to declare a default, um, whether China would really be um, open to this idea of yeah. Russia declaring default this is a question uh, a question that i cannot uh, give an answer to yeah if a, if a missile actually hit the kremlin or if a missile hit one of the nuclear power plants inside of moscow um, th those are those are things that would have mass massive uh, ripple effects um, missile by whom i mean missiles missile which was fired by whom yeah. i don't think that uh, nato that the united states first and foremost and this is also part of the reading uh on the side of the russian president i think that he actually um was expecting that uh, there will be no strong uh, you know no strong role uh, by the united states in terms of um, any military involvement um, and here we see that there is no comparison between uh, the u.s role in ukraine with the u.s role 
uh, in Taiwan. So it's a very different scenario for the United States specifically. These are two very different battles. And I think that this was also part of uh, um, Putin's calculations that uh, Biden would not uh, allow any military involvement, which as we are observing right now, 15 days uh, into this uh, uh, war uh, is definitely the case. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, there is uh, support coming from uh, from the United States, uh, but uh, there are, I do not anticipate any military involvement by NATO member states, um, meaning not only America, but also the European NATO member states. So in a sense, um, if uh, NATO would allow a NATO-Russia direct military conflict, this would actually uh, support uh, Putin's thesis, because right from the start, uh, the Russian president was trying to define this as, uh, you know, NATO threatening Russia and NATO basically uh, trying to uh, encircle Russia and coming uh, to the Russian border. So in a sense, it, he, he tried to define it as a preventive uh, a military operation. Uh, and I don't think that NATO would allow this to happen also uh, because of the severe risks arising out of it. I mean, the possibility of a direct, direct military confrontation is uh, per 2022 unthinkable. And uh, let's not forget that the Russian president stated uh, several times throughout the last years that uh, in the case of a nuclear uh, threat that he sees uh, basically a world uh, without Russia. He would, he would not uh, think twice, but would push the button. And this is something okay. that we should be absolutely clear about. He would push the button on the nuclear, on the nuclear, on Russia's nuclear weapons. I wanted to follow up on something Thomas raised a couple of questions back, and that is the role of technology in this conflict. So the sanctions that have been leveled against Russia are unprecedented, both in terms of their severity and the speed with which they were passed. And they include things like freezing something on the order of 60% of the foreign held reserves that the, are controlled by the central bank and kicking the two largest Russian banks off of SWIFT. Do you think there's any possibility in Russian oligarchs or Russia proper using things like Bitcoin or blockchain technology, cryptocurrencies to evade these sanctions? And uh, yeah, just just comment on that if you have any thoughts. Uh, first, I think that um, they have been pre-planned and uh, also coordinated uh, actions by China and Russia in this particular domain because uh, the, on the very same day as Visa and MasterCard announced um, their decision, in fact, uh, main Russian uh, banks also announced that they will cooperate with uh, the Chinese uh, um, payment system. So in a sense, uh, these things do not happen from one day to the next. You need uh, preparation, technical preparation for these uh, specific uh, decisions. Um, and it's a, you know, it's a very complicated process. So I think that this also was indicative of uh, preparations. And um, 
So the one thing that will happen, of course, is uh, that uh, China and Russia will increase, uh, of course, this uh, coordination so that Russian banks can operate with uh, China's help. And I've checked uh, the list. There are already 80 members in this payment system. So uh, you still have a lot of uh, countries in Asia, in uh, Africa, in Latin America, outside of the West. Uh, uh, we have 48 countries which actually introduced the sanctions and the rest is still is still there you have billions and billions of people who in fact uh, have not been included uh, in uh, Visa and MasterCard uh, payment systems, first and foremost. So in reality, uh, there are many options. I think at least this is their calculations. I'm trying to you know, present some arguments why they probably think that uh, they still have uh, India, they have China, they have, as I said, a lot of countries in Africa, in Latin America that would be actually open to uh, you know, operating with this, uh, with this uh, Russian banks, and of course, crypto is um, uh, is a different chapter. Now, if I look at the Chinese efforts to, in fact, uh, introduce uh, digital yuan and to put cryptocurrencies under uh, Chinese governmental control, I think that probably something similar will happen also in Russia, as they have been very. Uh, you know, very similar in the thinking, uh, specifically when it comes to uh, controlling the internet. I would not be surprised if at some point of time Russia decides to actually cut itself, uh, cut itself out of uh, the internet and introduce uh, its own internet. So basically, something that at some point of time even could um, well uh, reach out reach to to china or china also introduces its own internet and as i said this would also be indicative of this bifurcation where you have basically two different uh, systems uh operating or coexisting um, um while not really having points of intersection with the other one. So this is the first. The second is that when it comes to crypto, um, as I said, I rather anticipate uh, chi uh, Chinese or Russian controlled digital currencies than uh, leaving you know, the population, leaving the choice uh, <laughs> at the level of oligarchs that would try to, uh, you know, to, to, to use crypto for um, you know, to, for the sake of hedging and to, to basically save some of their assets. And um, once again, uh, I think that um, specifically when it comes to technology, um, I've looked at the numbers. Russia has become already quite dependent on technological transfer in general from China. So in reality, sanctions, uh, for instance, in this particular area will not really well, have a negative impact on Russia. Here we should also think about defense, uh, space technology, satellites, telecommunications, uh, as I said, internet, um, but also artificial intelligence, robotics, and so on and so forth. So all these relevant areas for the fourth industrial revolution. And when I said at the beginning uh, um, that we are already in a Cold War II scenario, I started with the political economy, but I argued that technology is going to be another de decisive domain because China is already competing with the United States. And in this particular case, uh, Russia sees itself as um, 
be, as benefiting from Chinese tech transfer. So, for instance, uh, students, uh, Russian students are already going to China uh, to the tech universities or successful telecommunication companies. Uh, and we know, of course, that Russia still can rely on the excellence of of uh, each students, uh, specifically in um, uh, natural sciences or also in, technolo in technologies, uh, this would be the case. So this is also one example, one of many, where we already are observing a kind of uh, coordination between the two states. And the other two important domains are going to be uh, international standards and norms um, where, you know, countries like China and Russia will be increasingly trying to become norms setters and not just norms takers. And once again, technology is going to be decisive, how they are going to introduce patents, how they are going to uh, impose, uh, for instance, if you talk about digital currency, are they going to introduce it also to other so-called partners, for instance, along the Belt and Road uh, Initiative or in the Eurasian Economic Union? And finally, of course, how are they going to forge alliances and partnerships with third countries? I think that, for instance, an example is how Russia is now using the Chinese card uh, to, to forge new partnerships, uh, uh, trade deals, um, to enter trade deals. For instance, a uh, fresh example is Pakistan. Um, basically, now given the fact that uh, China has uh, built an economic corridor there, has built a lot of infrastructure, Russia is now entering uh, Pakistan. Uh, the Pakistani market is going to build a pipeline for uh, for for Pakistan something unthinkable just uh, 10 or 20 years ago and this is only one of many examples yeah so one of the one of the tools we use in the futurist world is a tool called backcasting and and so I'd, I'd like you to actually uh, think about yourself sitting in the living room in the year uh, 2032, 10 years in the future, and you're looking back at this period of time, um, and I'd like you to think through how, how does this conflict end, and then what are some of the long-term um, uh, repercussions or implications of this, uh, this war that's taking place right now? So we are in the year 2032, yeah. right? Right. And we look at the map and what we see uh, on the map, on the global map, is uh, a world that uh, would look, in my view, um, very Asian-centric. Now, the first thing that I, I, would, I would see is, uh, of course, um, a map pointing to two Asian giants, uh, which are in a direct and in indirect uh, uh, military and actually regional confrontation uh, that uh, these countries being uh, China and India. India, meanwhile, being a fourth or third world, world uh, economic power with significant geoeconomic cloud uh, in the Indian Ocean uh, with uh, uh, various regional cooperations uh, in the Indian Ocean and in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, Taiwan is still there, 
still fighting back and uh, having solid alliances with the United States, but also with other Eastern Asian countries. Um, and that means uh, that uh, meanwhile, we are looking at the Indian Ocean and the Indo-Pacific, and there is a clear, uh, clear bifurcation of two geopolitical blocks. Uh, centered around United States and uh, China. Even Russia is already uh, in the Indian Ocean and is having military bases uh, at the eastern littorals of Africa, maybe in Mozambique or in Madagascar. Um, some are also in the Red Sea. Uh, is uh, meanwhile operating as a global mercenary of Chinese geoeconomic interests along the Chinese Belt and Road uh, in Asia, Africa, and some parts of uh, Europe, um, and also, of course, reaching even to Latin America. In every of these continents, we are looking at it, and I don't see um, almost anywhere a European uh, a European significant European role. Meanwhile, I see Europe as a geopolitical backyard of the global affairs, uh, being geopolitically irrelevant because of the lack of hard power. Europe is not able to exercise uh, hard power projection beyond uh, the Mediterranean Sea is dealing uh, with uh, significant migration uh, pressure in the south, in the southern neighborhood because of uh, climate change and uh, significant terrorist activities. The, south, uh, the, the Sahel region uh, has meanwhile become the hub of terrorist activities. And this, of course, creates a whole corridor which uh, is blocking a lot of uh, Africans uh, from moving from the south towards the north. Uh, on the other side, of course, the north of Africa being already penetrated by several regional actors who have established their um, zones of influence. Now, looking at the United States, United States is still this uh, most significant um, global player, which is competing with China in every relevant domain from uh, space where they have meanwhile separated uh, uh, space stations um, and satellites are being uh, constantly um, attacked uh, to the military domain where there are, of course, proxy wars everywhere where drones are operating, uh, new technologies are being used, and of course, then moving to uh, the political economy, we are meanwhile uh, seeing a world in which they are uh, basically parallel uh, networks uh, from economy and trade to uh, agriculture and uh, even regional organizations you see clearly a bifurcated world of coexisting uh, blocks, which uh, have decided that a military, direct military confrontation would be um, 
more or less uh, uh, disastrous for both. So they decide to not engage in a direct military confrontation, but to coexist uh, while confronting each other via proxy wars and also indirect participation in third uh, parts of uh, the world. And where is Russia? Russia is where it has been. Uh, Russia is uh, meanwhile in this exact vertical axis of of um, geopolitical and geoeconomic expansion uh, has uh, swallowed some parts of uh, Europe, has uh, meanwhile managed to militarize the Arctic and uh, once again, as I said, uh, is uh, challenging on the one side uh, Europe, which is has shrunk, but on the other side is also operating in in increasingly in uh, Central and South Asia. And I would stop here <laughs> because otherwise I'm, I may may start enjoying. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you have it, ladies this and gentlemen. Process. <laughs> the, the next 10 years of, of the history of the world. Thank you so much. It was just. <laughs> no, th thanks so much for shedding light on these difficult situations and, and the conflicts that are unfolding. And uh, we really appreciate your time. Yeah, well, thank you. This is this is quite enlightening. Much appreciated. Thank you very much, and I really hope that I will be wrong with most of what I've uh, <laughs> what I have uh, outlined for you in the last uh, hour or even more, because as I said, not much of it is really optimistic, <laughs> but I've never strived uh, for optimism. I only wanted to reflect on the world the way it is and not the way. It should be right yeah well thank well, you very, very much good. thank you so much thank you for the invitation it's been great pleasure this podcast is a part of the c-suite radio network for more top business podcasts visit c-suiteradio.com